The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. So first of all, thank you, uh, Robert, for joining us. We're, we're very excited for today. Uh, Happy, we'll go for ho hopefully, hopefully an hour, and if you have a little more time, we might push you, you, know, push you a little beyond that, but feel free to, you know, raise the flag, um, you know, when, when you've had enough. And then, um, and then, uh, yeah, we have a full set of topics to talk about that I'm excited about, but let me start by, uh, giving you a short introduction for the folks in the audience who might not know who you are. Um, so, uh, when I started in the tech industry in the nineties and learned about venture capital, um, the one thing that basically every expert, uh, on tech companies and venture capital assured me, um, is that there was, there would never be an opportunity for what were called buyouts. Uh, or private equity uh, in the software industry. Um, it wasn't possible. It would never happen. Um, and the, the theory was basically that software companies were kind of like fireflies. Um, and so you'd have a new software company. It would have a product. If the product you know, didn't hit, the company would die. But if the product hit, then you'd have this like big spike in revenue and earnings and cash flow and then market valuation that sort of would last for the sort of duration of that product cycle you know, over the next you know, few years. Um, and then basically the value of that product, it was like, it was like a, you know, it was like a banana on the grocery store shelf, you know, software sort of was getting, it would get obsolete in real time. And within three or four years, that product would be obsolete, um, and not have any enduring value. And then that, um, company would either discover the next product, develop the next product or not and live or die based on the next product. And so everybody basically said, there's no way to then do basically a, a private, have a private equity approach, uh, or sort of a long-term investing approach to software. You need to kind of be trading around these product cycles all the time. Um, and then basically, well, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about this today, but basically Robert um, and his firm Vista starting in the early 2000s, I would say very comprehensively disproved that theory um, with, a, uh, with a brand new theory that, that Robert will take us through about how actually uh, private equity and buyouts actually make tremendous sense in, in, in software. And, and that's led to sort of a, a really fundamental, uh, you know, kind of reevaluation of the nature of the software industry and, 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 and how software companies work over, over the last 20 years and has, has really changed, changed a lot of aspects of how our industry operates. And, <laughs> And as, a, and as a consequence of that kind of conceptual breakthrough, um, uh, Robert's uh, firm, uh, Vista, you know, has become, you know, probably the closest analogy that we have in, in tech investing to Berkshire Hathaway, um, which is this firm that has just had this extraordinary investment track record for the last 20 years um, and has become, you know, both very large and very important um, and, um, you know, has, has really been kind of defining, uh, you know, for how the software industry works. And so we're, we're super excited, Robert, to, uh, to, to have you here and and we are we're gonna we, we would like to dive right in and if possible uh, i would like to dive right in as we as we like to say with your superhero origin story um <laughs> which is uh, take you all the way back to the beginning uh and i wonder if you could kind of take us through kind of uh where you were born and and then you know uh, uh and then sort of uh what were sort of the you know sort of kind of your key experiences when you when you were a kid sure sure appreciate it and, and mark good to chat with you and ben good to chat with you again and thank you for for inviting me and um, you know, like all good uh, uh, superhero stories, they, they they start with humble beginnings. <laughs> um, yep. uh, yeah, my, my my parents are both school teachers. I grew up uh, basically in a segregated neighborhood in in Denver, Colorado, and mm -hmm. it was it was one of those lives where I, I kind of you know when I think back on it, um, I, I had everything I needed and nothing nothing I wanted. Right? I had you know love and support <laughs> of the community and 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 people who who actually believed in. I use the word kind of you know a beloved community, looking to nurture the children in the community, and people kind of took care of uh, each other. Is one of those you know when my dad sent me to the store, uh, 
you know, and as you walked the three blocks there, everybody kind of looked out for you on the way there. And if you broke a window, you 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 paid for it by the time you got home um, a few times. So, you know, and, and so in, in that environment, you know, it's just so important, you know, to really think about the love and support that that my community provided. Um, you know, we we that was at kind of the dawn of the age of segregation or desegregation. And, and, and in fact, they, they started busing out of my neighborhood. Um, you know, it's just tragic. You know, there was some some idiot racist who burned a third of the buses. So only one bus came to my my particular area. And oh, wow. only, you know, a group of us got on that, that bus. And what's amazing is when I look at how the folks uh, did who got on that bus and, you know, of course, it was bus number 13 um, uh, and how they did in life. Uh, relative to those who didn't get on the bus, is just a vast difference in in you know uh, opportunity and success. And you know many of these folks yeah, ended up in you know Ivy League schools and and engineers and politicians and all that. So it really starts to underscore the importance of fundamental education. And we were bused to another school across town, which was much better resourced, etc. Wow! Uh, and was know, it a random selection yeah. that, that that put you yeah. on that bus, or was it your parents <laughs> pushing for it, or how that happened? You know, who knows? I think it was as random as as, as as it could be, quite frankly, you know, there were some wow. three buses that came to our neighborhood. One came; it just happened to be at the end of the block, and so they really just pulled from, you know, the the, the four or five blocks that that until the bus was filled, and, and then that was that. And everybody else, you know, went to one Amazing. of the other local yeah, elementary schools. So you know, there's like all things in life and business. You know, serendipity has a lot to yeah. to, to uh, it, it has its own hand. Um, you know, I end up, uh, you know, going to the same high school my father went to, uh, which was uh, Denver East High School, uh, a, a good school. Um, you know, we had a number of kids who did well, went to, you know, great schools and some who didn't necessarily finish school. Uh, but it was very diverse in, in, in that context. Uh, and the thing that I remember most ab about East, well, there's a number of things, you know, great friendships, relationships that lasted to this day. But, you know, it was, it was a time when, you know, if you wanted to play an instrument, you went to band and you signed up and they gave you an instrument to use and you learned how to play an instrument. And didn't matter where you came from, you know, socioeconomic background, you had that opportunity. Um, same with, you know, sports. And, 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 you know, and as a result of that, you, you, you got a chance to to you know, frankly, socialize with people from different backgrounds and, you know, uh, ethnic origins, et cetera. And I think that's something that 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 I continue to think had a formative element uh, in, in my experiences growing up. So that's why I have an ability to kind of, you know, cascade across the world and meet with people in different backgrounds, because I went to school with a lot of people with different backgrounds. But, uh, you know, when you start thinking about the, the trajectory of my life and career, you know, they introduced computers uh, for the first time when I was a junior in high school. And uh, Mark and I would kind of chuckling about this, you know, his first computer was a, uh, what we used to call them the trash 80s, the TRS-80, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, my brother and I bought a Commodore 64, right? You know, we mm -hmm. saved our money. Yeah, for that. yeah, that, that was better than the trash 80s. Well, yeah, oh. that's why we could call them trash 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, we had a little Epson dot matrix printer and oh man, you know, that yeah. thing was just like, oh my goodness, you know, couldn't get any more powerful than that. Um, and, you know, that exposure, though, uh, just started to, 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 you know, create that little flash and that spark. And, you know, I was talking to my teacher um, and I said, hey, t tell me how this thing works. And he started talking about this thing called a semiconductor. And I said, well, what is that? And, I, and who made that? Who came up with that whole thing? And he said, you know, well, it's this place called Bell Labs. And so I literally... <laughs> Uh, looked in the phone book. Some of the, some of the folks on this call remember those. Um, and and <laughs> yeah, looked up. Yeah, yeah. And there was a there was the Bell Labs in in Colorado, and I called them, 
uh, and, uh, uh, you know, talked to human resources uh, person. I said, hey, you know, uh, you guys have in internships. Um, and she said, yeah, we do. And if you're between your junior and senior year in college, uh, you can get an internship. I said, that's terrific because I'm a junior in high school. I'm getting A's in my AP classes. So it's just like being in college. So where do I apply? Um, <laughs> and uh, she, she, of course, uh, said, you, you, you apply when you're a junior in college. So I literally called her every day uh, for two weeks. Um, and she stopped taking the call after the second day. Um, and, uh, and I left a message. Um, and then I called her once a week for about five months, <laughs> every Monday. Wow. Yeah. And I'd go put it. You're like the most phone. persistent engineer ever. Yeah, do, do, let me tell you, yeah, there's, there's some lessons in life here. Right. And literally she yeah. called me back. She left a me not a message. She left a message with my dad, uh, at the house and my dad said, Hey, some woman called from Bell Labs today, you know, I want you to give her a call back. And this is like, you know, five months later. And I call her and she says, Hey, a student from MIT didn't show up. Uh, if you're interested, you, you know, we're not guaranteeing you anything, but you can come down and interview. Right. So I had uh, 69 Plymouth satellite with about 158,000 miles on it. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, put two dollars worth of gas. It had one suit. Drove out and got the job. Um, and I worked there pretty much throughout almost all of my college experience as a as a co op student and intern. And you know, I, I always tell people, you know, there's a couple lessons there. Of course, one is tenacity. You know, to um, you know, thank God they didn't have uh, uh, you know answering machines because some other student would have probably got their, their their phone call answered. But at the end of the day, I say, you know, you can't rely on MIT students. You got to rely on Cornell students. So um, <laughs> that's it. So I ended up, uh, you know, frankly, yes, I ended up with a job in engineering um, as a junior in high school at Bell Labs. And that just changed my world. Um, the mentorship, the exposure, the experiences, seeing things that, you know, you'd seen, you know, I saw kind of the first cell phones there, first video phones, and had the ability to work on projects and with some, with some brilliant people. Uh, and that changed my life. And that's why I'm such a big proponent now of, you know, of internship and intern and, and intern programs. So that that's really kind of what what would cast the narrative up until I went to went to college. And then what was we, Robert, we have a lot of engineers, you know, on the, on the, in, in this. What was the most interesting project you worked on at Bell Labs? Well, I'll tell you, the coolest thing was I worked um, and this is this is one of those lessons in life that I, I try to impart upon my kids. I worked on an operational amplifier. We had some operational amplifiers that were failing in the field. You, you guys uh, remember, you know, Fairchild semiconductors, et cetera, uh, mm -hmm. it, as part of our Merlin systems. And uh, I had the great pleasure, and this is why it was so important, uh, mentorships. So I, I shared an office with a guy by the name of Vic Hauser, PhD, solid state physics, had like 35 patents to his name. Uh, and, you know, they, they kind of kind of put me in his office and he kind of looks me up and down and says, well, we got a project we're going to work on and we got to figure out why these things are failing in the field. It's an operational amplifier. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, and here's the thing. You've got the full resources, the Bell Labs at your disposal. The library's down around the corner. I'm here to answer any question that you have. Um, so when you have some questions, let me know. And he kind of turned his desk or his chair around. I was like, oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> um, and crazy. so, I, yeah, I marched on down to the library. I said, well, first of all, what's an operational amplifier? What's it supposed to do? What, <laughs> what is this one not doing, et cetera? And I come back and answer, ask a question, a series of questions. And he'd literally get on the whiteboard and, and, and you know, for hours. And I just keep asking questions. And then when, when I was exhausted, he said, well, come back tomorrow when you have some more questions, right? 
And so what I ended up doing is building a, a was called a dynamic test of oven. And, and in fact, I was, you know, trying to simulate the, you know, infant mortality of, of the failure of this device uh, in the field. And then once we did that, we were able to, in, in essence, you know, look at it and figure out what it was a, basically some one of the uh, uh, um, uh, the, the between the NP junction. They basically had had didn't put enough of the um, the. Uh, 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 insulator between the two. And so they had an, a, a problem with the manufacturing process. And that's what we determined over the course of that summer. So for me, that was just an exploratory experience on how to basically take a big problem, break it into a series of small problems, and then, you know, create systems to, to dissect it. So again, this is over 40 years ago now, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. believe it or not, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but it had a lasting effect. And I always tell my kids now, one of the things I want to leave them with is, you know, I hope they, they discover the joy of figuring things out. And that's one of the things that lasted forever. Yeah, one of the things that I found very fascinating about computers back in those days and sort of the, these kinds of technologies is they were still at that point, they were sort of, they weren't simple, <laughs> they were complicated, but they were, they were, you could understand the entire thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I and, and you're right. I mean, so if you think about it, you know, I had, you know, an 88, I think it was an 8088 processor and literally writing machine language to actually send code into and out of that that operational amplifier and check whenever it failed. And then whenever it failed, it would go into a register, then I'd know which one it was, and you know, then I'd go and find out how why it failed. I mean, and you program this stuff from you know machine language up, right? So yep. that that was actually pretty cool. Learning those fundamentals and basics, you know, today I even rely on that to some degree in, in terms of when we do diagnostics and diligence around companies. It's pretty yep. interesting stuff. Yep, exactly. So we'll, and we'll talk more about that. So um, so then in, in college, um, my understanding is, yeah, you studied chemical engineering. Um, and maybe you could describe kind of why why chemical engineering and then, you know, kind of what were the kind of first steps in your career? Yeah. You know, and it's, that, it's, utilize that skill. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, when, when you think about it, and this is really what the chemies at, uh, at, at Cornell taught us. They said, you know, listen, you guys are the modern day and guys and gals, but mainly guys in my class we're, are the modern day alchemist, right? If you think about it, we would take one form of matter and convert it to another. You know, we take oil and we make plastic. We take, you know, sand and make silicon, right? And, and you know, and and we had that capacity and that knowledge and that capability, and you could do it at scale. And and that's what was interesting to me about it. You know, there you know there was all sorts of disciplines, and you know, of course, you know, the time computer science was starting to grow and mechanical is civil engineering, but chemical engineering to me really was, you know, you're starting with some, you know, some matter, some material. And you have to now perform a series of unit operations on it to make it do something else and to change its properties or to work or, or and then now, of course, you know, when you think about it and Mark, you and I chat about, you know, the, the modern day alchemists today are now, you know, software programmers. Right. You yep. know, it's now taking yep. intellectual property of the mind and turning into something that actually has some economic rent uh, in, in, in certain areas. So that's what was interesting to me. I, I then went off and worked in, in industry. I. I you know, I didn't think there was anything greater in the world, quite frankly, than coming up with something that no one else had done, right? So I was all about applied research and development and had the great fortune of, of then, you know, working on some interesting projects, you know, solving a bunch of interesting problems. And I'll get to one later, but, you know, uh, earning a couple U.S. and European patents, you know, doing something no one else had done in the world before. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And that, that's what I really enjoyed doing at, at, at the time. Yeah, and then you worked, if I'm not mistaken, you worked at Kraft Foods along yep. the way. Is that right? Yeah, Kraft and the Foods. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that was, was <laughs> That was probably right at the peak. I'm guessing that was right around the peak of sort of the U.S. kind of probably the peak of sort of applied science and sort of food production. Um, yep. 
Yep. And it was probably you know, right before kind of things started to get like more kind of organic and so forth. I, I was just curious, like, what was it like to work in a place like Kraft in those days? And like, what, what, what do you think those of us who never did that should understand about kind of how food? How, how yeah, because and, and and note that Mark's favorite food growing oh. up was Kraft macaroni and cheese. Kraft, so. Hey man, Kraft one of the best, right? <laughs> yeah. no Every question. time I see a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, I get instantly hungry. I know, right? Uh, mouth starts salivating. I understand that, and, and it's built to do that. I mean, a big part of it is you're, you're optimizing. <laughs> Right, you're you're optimizing a couple things. One, you're optimizing just exactly right, kind of your organoleptic experiences of the consumer, right? And you test that forever. It's like, okay, wow. what makes your mouth water? What makes your you know your your what makes you want to eat more of it? I suppose. I mean, and literally, you're testing with with you know multivariants and changing them and 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 you know kind of every day, and then saying, okay, now this is what people prefer. And then, of course, you go to the engineering optimization. Okay, now how do we make it cheaper, right? And so those are the two competing forces to some degree that, are, that worked in, quote, unquote, the food business at the time. And it was only starting to get introduced, this whole idea and thought around organic. Well, that kind of came kind of 19 years later, but but that's, that's really what it was. I mean, one of the things I worked on actually was, you know, reducing the cost of, you know, manufacturing the coffee. And I came up with a process. We didn't patent it. We didn't want our competitors to know how to do it that saved between seven and 14 cents a pound on every pound of coffee that, you know, this company was called Maxwell House Coffee Company. Some of you don't remember, it was the biggest coffee company in the world uh, that, that actually, uh, um, you know, it saved that kind, of, that, that kind of money on every pound that was manufactured. One of the more interesting things, though, is I actually developed and, and imported here in the U.S. the first microprocessor-controlled coffee brewer in the U.S. Hmm. And I developed it with a company called WMF based in Germany. And what was neat about it, so I, I you know, built these six machines with them, and I was out doing a test, and I went to, went to a, a, a town called Seattle, and I'm out there, you know, putting out these brewers, and we're testing it, and I'm looking at these people buying this coffee, and I come back, and I come back to my boss, and I say, hey, you know, um, they, they've got this place out there, and they're buying coffee. It's like $5 a cup, and at the time, coffee was, you know, 50 cents a cup, all you could drink, and they just refill it. And my yep. boss looked at me and he and, and I said, you know, we could take these machines, we could program them, they could make lattes and you know cappuccinos and put them out on kiosk. And he looked at me, he said, Americans will never pay five dollars for a cup of coffee. So right. that's that's another one of those lessons. <laughs> never listen to your boss. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so to this fun, day, fun times. To this day, uh, to this day, I think that coffee tastes like Maxwell House, um, and everything else <laughs> tastes like overly strong and rich. So I <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, you you were raised on the right right palate. See the general yeah. foods palate. <laughs> yes, yeah, you got you got pro programmed in early. Yeah. Um, and so then, how did you decide? I want to talk about how, kind of how you brought these skills in investing. But at, at what sure. point in your career did you decide to kind of make the switch to become an investor? Yeah, you know, it, so this is the importance of media. And, and Van, who was just on, and I talk about you know the importance of of, of true media. And there's a you know magazine called Black Enterprise that had all of these you know African American executives who were on Wall Street. And I'd never heard of Wall Street. I you know I grew up in, in what's Wall Street, right? Yep. And they had these guys, you know, you know, John Utendahl and, you know, Ray McGuire and Stan O'Neill and all these folks. And you're talking about, you know, mergers and acquisitions. I'm like, what is all this stuff these people are talking about? So, you know, I started doing some work and, you know, analysis on it. I said, man, that's pretty interesting. And uh, I was thinking about going back to grad school and I, you know, got in a few different grad schools. So I decided, you know, let me head back to grad school. So I went to went to Columbia and I did well my first year, you know, and they invited me back for the summer graduation between first and second year. And they're saying, hey, you know, you did really well and you win this award, you know, top student, all that sort of stuff. I said, great. 
Uh, and so John Utendahl was actually the, the keynote speaker for that summer graduation. He pulls me over and he says, hey, you know, you've got an interesting background. Have you ever, ever thought about a career in investment banking? Now, if you've ever met John, you know, he's like six foot eight and just beautiful and handsome. And I'm like, man, you know, I, I say, do I get to look like you? And, you know, and, uh, and I said, well, I said, to be frank with you, I said, there's a bunch of investment bankers in my class. I don't like any of them. And uh, he, he kind of looks at me and says, well, why not? I said, they think they know everything. And, you know, I'm an engineer. And we do know everything. It bothers us. Um, and uh, John just kind of chuckles. He said, I said, but I'll, honestly, I said, I don't really understand what you all do. What do you create? What's the value that you create? Because I just I didn't understand that world. And so he invited me in um, to spend some time with him. And, you know, I, and he's one of my closest friends to this day. And I, and I thank him for this because he literally took hours and just really started to help me understand this whole world of finance and capital. And then he introduced me to Ray McGuire and, you know, Stan O'Neill and a bunch of people on Wall Street, you know, mm -hmm. Dick Parsons and others, where I could literally, you know, he picked up the phone and called him and said, hey, you know, you should talk to this guy, an interesting background. He thinks he's pretty funny, but he's not. But, you know, you guys should spend a little time with him. So I started talking with these folks and really starting to understand investment banking. And I looked at it and I said, you know, I really like this world of mergers and acquisitions. I said, because if you think about it, it's at the highest level of the capital structure. It's how assets get moved across, you know, from one owner to another. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. So I was, you know, fortunate and, and you know, did well in, in school and such and, and got, a, got a, you know, bunch of offers and one of them at Goldman Sachs and joined Goldman Sachs in the M&A department. And to me, I thought that was one of the most, you know, fascinating places in the world that anybody could work. And actually, that's, believe it or not, that's where I met Mark the first time mm. when he came mm -hmm. in. And he was about to take this little company called Netscape Public. And <laughs> remember that? And they invited me in. And he's standing there all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed looking, looking for, a, for a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese or something. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I start talking yeah. to him about, wow, this is pretty neat. And, uh, you know, I, I've been, you know, one of the most interesting experiences I had in, in, as an engineer, which, I'll lead, which leads to Vista a little bit, was one of the things I started to understand was the power of computing. You know, we, we one of my projects... Uh, when I graduated college was to actually go and, and automate a, um, a manufacturing facility. And we were implementing what were at the time were TDC 3000, programmable logic controllers, and basically putting in, you know, control system, digital control systems for, to replace the analog, you know, systems. And when I completed that, that project, in essence, you know, increased the productivity of that plant by about 26%. I mean, there's a couple other things associated with it, but that's when you start to realize the efficacy that computing power brings to any, you know, any environment. And I just always remembered that. And so once I ended up getting into kind of the mergers and acquisitions group, and we started using spreadsheets. Now, the generation before me were still using, you know, literally slide rules and, and, and such. We started yep. using spreadsheets. And at the time, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, we use a thing called Asterix, which you probably don't remember, okay? There was Multiplan, there was Asterix, there was VisiCalc, and then there was this little thing called Lotus123, and then finally these folks uh, came up with this thing called Excel, right, which we've all converged on on the planet, right? So, you know, this was during the time when you kind of picked your spreadsheet and then you had to argue with whoever was working on your project with you as to which one you would converge to, right? So um, that was all kind of the, the, the early stages of computing, um, but I really started to understand the efficacy that that uh, uh, computational power could bring to any environment, including investment banking. So it was really interesting times. Mm -hmm. And then it, it sounds like also, um, just reading about stuff you said, it sounds like also you're, basically the, the engineer brings a systems approach, might be a, a yeah. way to put it, to business yeah. problems. Do you think that's mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah, no question. No question. And, and, you know, and I think that's, you know, to a great extent, that's what kind of led me ultimately to this whole idea of, well, hang on a second. You know, when you look at, you know, that original thesis, why would you ever do a buyout in software? Because, you know, all your assets leave every day. They go out of the elevator every single day. But when you start meeting a bunch of, you know, again, this 20 plus years ago, engineers or sorry, you know, who are, you know, running software companies, A, this is the biggest company they've ever run. B, you know, they, they don't really necessarily know all the elements of running a software company well. They may know how to write code to develop a product that solves a problem, but they don't know, you know, what's a good go-to-market strategy? How do you actually build in, you know, uh, services and support? How do you, you know, how do you ensure that you you, you have, you know, global customer service? All those things were learned. Remember, we were all young with, with without gray hair, right, or, or, or had hair at the time. And so a lot of people didn't really get all of the elements of how to run a software company. So the whole idea... Yep behind Vista to a great extent is, okay, how do I bring a whole set of best practices that are shared and learned and developed and evolved to, to help these entrepreneurs, these business folks run their businesses more efficiently? Because many of them don't have anyone else to talk to, right, about yep. who's, who's run a software company as big as what they're running. So that, that's, that's how we got informed on that whole dynamic. But that itself is kind of a, an unusual idea in the sense that, you know, if you look at the M&A strategies of the big software companies, they tend to not even, you know, a lot of, they, they tend to not deploy common practices a lot, you know, that they'll bring in separate sales forces and make them in parallel and this and that and the other. And so, you know, the fact that you guys came up with a kind of a, what was common across sales and marketing across every software company it's all. It's an original invention, yeah, to some yeah. degree, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. You know, when you think about it, twenty plus years ago, and again, it has evolved, right? When we started, mm -hmm. we were focusing on large legacy software companies, right? So these were, mm -hmm. you know, IBM three seventies, Big Iron, you know, sitting out there in <laughs> situ, you know, big, big, you know, air conditioned room. And, you know, in, in essence, they, you know, identifying the customers, showing the ROI benefits. That's one thing that hasn't changed. The ROI of software, the benefit of the products um, to our customers is enormous. Every year, every, every year, I still do a survey of every one of our companies and what is the benefit that their customers get. We still get over a 600% ROI on the average product that we sell to our average customer. So... Mm -hmm. Just that very nature means that it's going to be consumed, right? It has a high consumption rate. But now the question is, well, how do you deliver it? You know, how do you deliver that product to those customers? So we started building these best practices around, you know, specific verticals and specific functions within software companies, you know, product, service, sales, you know, go to market, all those sort of things, and really started to develop and, and, and double, triple, you know, EBITDA in those businesses and, and expand the growth. Well, then, of course, something changes. What's the next thing? The changes. Well, we started to identify, call it back to the future, we started to come up with these things called ASP, which was, in essence, hosted solutions. Yeah. Remember? Uh, right, right. Remember yeah, that? they yeah. have that. That's you remember an old that? term, Robert. Yeah, right. It's like the choreo. <laughs> Dude, old <laughs> yeah. school, baby. Old school, yeah. right? So, you know, yeah. So now well, all of a sudden, you know, with these third party hosted data centers where the applications are there, now it's known as the cloud, right? Much lower operating yes. costs. And so then we say, you know what? Let's become expert at migrating these legacy companies to cloud. Boom. We've probably done yeah. more than those than anybody on the planet today, right? Then yeah. you start to think about the ubiquity of computing power, right? And now all of a sudden, this cloud, this public cloud, low cost, you know, low code solutions 
et cetera, starts to now permeate the environment. And so now people go from, man, needing millions of dollars to do a startup to using a credit card to start up. So you have low operating car costs, it's built on the uh, cloud. And to the extent you actually understand your market, you can have potentially superior growth trajectories. Comma, however, do you know how to build the infrastructure so you can grow at scale, so you can convert these legacy businesses from on-prem to SaaS and transition your market from small to medium business where most of them start to large enterprise. So now that's kind of the third phase of where Vista is, right? So that's what we that's what we focus on is, you know, you have to, now don't get me wrong, we keep our capacity and our knowledge and our insights from what we've done in the past, but we constantly evolve. So the, it's those sort of shifts that has that have helped us continue to kind of lead the way in the in the work that we do in our space. And yeah, now that oh go ahead, Mark. Oh yeah. Uh, well uh, Ben we'll come back to this but Robert, I was just curious, like when you rolled out this idea that this was like a feasible thing to do. Um, when you kind of rolled out the theory, did, did like everybody just kind of go, oh yeah, that makes sense? Or did they, <laughs> <laughs> or, or would you, you say know, people were skeptical? What was the reaction? You, you know, it, it comes, it came back to you. Are you out of your mind? You know, why would anybody ever want to do a buyout in software, right? Because yeah. again, it gets back to those same, you know, a, a misunderstanding of what enterprise software is. You know, you two know it better than most. If you think about it, Enterprise software, this is business software, high recurring revenues, high retention rates. Once you get on it, it's rare that you can get off. Usually it's a 95% gross margin business. You build it once, you sell it as many times as you can, no inventory, and oh, by the way, very little CapEx, right? So the whole it all comes down to if you can operate these businesses efficiently, then you will have an installed base of customers that you will have not for quarters or for weeks or for months, but for decades. And then the question is, have you built an infrastructure that can now innovate off of that platform? Part of that innovation comes from the data, because you have unique access to data that no one else has. And part of it is you understand the workflows of your customer base. And if you're actually listening to your customer base, you understand how you can solve more of their problems. So in essence, that's the dynamic that says, those are the businesses that should liberate free cash flows and the ability to reinvest in your business, either through add-on acquisitions or through you know, organic uh, building of your products and innovating. And to me, that made a ton of sense. So like all things, you know, you, like I'm sure you see stuff all the time, like, you know, you know, <laughs> EFT type stuff. You say, man, that makes a ton of sense where the rest of the world's like, what are you talking about? That makes no sense whatsoever. Who wants a digital bunny? Anyway, right. Um, right. I mean, so that's well, kind of the, the dynamic. <laughs> so actually, there's, a, there's an interesting um story about actually how you touched us at the firm and that, you know, when software SaaS multiples were kind of rising from whatever they were, five or six, six times revenue, you know, towards where they are today, a lot of people in the firm were like, oh, wow, the multiples are getting inflated. And we were like, no, you got to pay attention to what Robert Smith is doing. They're not inflated. Like everybody has the wrong multiples now. And what he saw with Vista, everybody's going to realize over time and that's where it's going. And so you actually helped us quite a bit. Yeah, I heard yeah, I Mark say that in particular many times. Well, I will look forward to my royalty checks because I haven't gotten it yet. So, <laughs> thank, thank you, Dad. And now it's on, on, on the record in public. <laughs> exactly. And then, uh, Robert, you're famous. Um, the, the firm is famous for having, my understanding is like a very detailed and specific playbook, you know, to your point on kind of how to run a software company. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of what was the origin story of that and, and what, what form and shape has that taken over time? 
Sure, and like all things, it evolves, right? You know, one of the first clients that I had at Goldman Sachs, this company, they actually ran a very efficient, uh, you know, software business. And one of the things I looked at, they, they used to call them, you know, standard operating procedures, right? And I, and I looked at that and I said, man, and I had the good, you know, good fortune of seeing a bunch of software companies, and I noticed how everybody did everything differently, right? Everybody did, you know, the product development or go to market or their pricing. You know, take pricing, for instance. You know, when you ask an engineer, uh, you know, they ask the engineer, well, well, how did you, you know, how did you come up with the pricing for this product that you sell? And there may be a little hand waving and all that sort of stuff. At the end of the day, 90% of them say, well, honestly, I just made it up. And yep. I made it up based on what I had in terms of cost that was in it and how many customers I think I need to make to recover. They never actually think about, well, what is the economic rent value of this product to my customer? Right. And software, you know, so software is kind of an interesting thing. You know, you can have the same software product that saves one customer $3 million a year and saves another customer $30 million a year. And usually what happens, somebody puts it on some price sheet and it's sold for the same price. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Right. right. <laughs> so part of what it is, and these, this, this is the honing of these best practices, is now saying, how do I think about what is, it, what is the economic rent that is actually derived by my customer for this product, and how do I price it so they have a good deal and I have a good deal? This goes back to the old, old IBM days, right? You know, mm -hmm. how do you make a win-win? And it's that sort of a dynamic. Now, how do you do it? How do you codify it so you're not just doing it in one company, but how can you do it across 20 or 40 or 60 or 100? And so that's where the process engineering comes across. And everyone thinks, oh, it's a static playbook. It isn't. It is highly dynamic. It has to be because, you know, 10 years ago, you know, we weren't thinking about, you know, uh, you, you know, artificial intelligence or, you know, robotic process automation as a best practice to put into a software company. So we have to naturally evolve and, and capture that knowledge and then spread the knowledge. I think we're one of the few platforms in the world, quite frankly, where I get... 60 to 70 CEOs of software companies together regularly to share best practices in an organized fashion and in all of their CXOs. Okay, well, what does that do? It moves the entire infrastructure of, you know, 70 plus thousand, you know, employees forward because they're not all trying to reinvent the wheel every single time based on the people that they have. And, you know, we'll have a $30 million software company that's implementing solutions in artificial intelligence that, you know, you you won't find in a company under you know a billion dollars in revenue because we're able to actually take that knowledge and export it back into the smaller companies and enable them to do things that they that they otherwise couldn't do. That's the that's the beauty of the ecosystem. That's part of the outgrowth of the best practices is building ecosystems to support the development, enhancement, and the uh, evolution of these best practices. And then, do you think at this point, do you think you've kind of got it, you know, after, after like 20 years, do you think you've got it to kind of perfect, kind of as good as good can get? Or do you think that in the next like decade, you know, that you'll learn, learn kind of yet more about how to better run these companies? Uh, always improving. I mean, that's, that's the, the, the nature of engineering, right? While well, you have something kind of yeah. right, and man, that works great there, but oh man, but if we did this, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that's and that's that's the joy of it too. Remember that that whole that you know the joy of figuring things out. You know, you yep. get it kind of, you know pretty right, and some people might say, "Man, that was outstanding." You say, "Yeah, but you know, had we done this this way, this could be even better." And you have to have the kind of people in your organization who view that as not only a challenge, but frankly, part of their purpose in life is to constantly and continually improve upon what it is that you do every day. And that's 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 uh, you know that's part of the joy of managing people too.
And then how often are you, when you buy these companies, how often do you retain the founders? And um, how often do you kind of say, you know, either you or the founder kind of say, okay, this is, you know, probably enough. We've, you've taken it kind of as far as you can, and maybe we need a different kind of management. So we've now done 510 transactions. And if you look at the wow. statistics, I know, right? If yep. you look at, I know you guys do that every week. Sorry about that. But, you know. <laughs> no, no, that's a lot Yeah, if you look at the statistics, we're 50-50. OK, but if I look at more recently, it's probably like, I don't know, 65, 35, where we where we're keeping the, uh, the the senior executives. And I'll tell you why. OK, in the early days, you would have a senior executive of a company who really didn't understand software. For instance, you know, we owned a business and, you know, it was in a call it the insurance space. The CEO had no background in software, had no, but had a good background in sales. Great. Right. And, you know, we th that person stayed with us and did fine and everything, and we sold the company. That company's been sold two or three times. But that was kind of the archetype of what you got. You know, someone was in sales or they were part of the industry. They didn't necessarily understand software. The CEOs that we get today, I mean, they're, you know, they they graduate, they, they have, you know, degrees in engineering or software or computer science, whatever it is. And so they actually understand a lot of what we're talking about a lot more than, in, than the, uh, the CEOs from 15 years ago. And so that's why we have a much higher retention rate because, and if you looked at it, there's, it's just a different demographic, right? Not surprising. We've been at this now, you know, 20, 21 years at Vista. But if you think about a computing power, available computing power, 30, some 30 or so years. And so you're now getting people who have graduated, started businesses who actually understand this industry a lot better. They just may not necessarily know how to take their company from you know, 30, 40, 50, or 100 million in revenues to 500 million in revenues or billion dollars in revenues or in doubling growth because they may not know know all the underpinnings of, of building, you know, the sales and marketing engine, the development engine, the, the hiring engine, the, all that sort of thing. So that, that, that's how things have evolved and are different. Yep. And then I'm really curious, um, you know, Ben and I both went to state schools, you know, good state schools, but state schools. And then... Uh, <laughs> At least I'll speak for myself, like I got out here and I was like fairly shocked the degree to which, you know, even Silicon Valley is kind of run, you know, by, by Ivy League graduates. Um, and, you know, it's become, I think, very common and, and if anything, even more common over the last decade or two to kind of have, you know, this very kind of blue chip kind of Ivy League background for kind of CEOs and as well as, you know, top bankers and top lawyers and everybody else. Um, I, at Vista, it sounds like you maybe have a different approach to kind of sourcing talent uh, and evaluating talent. It's not just based on that. I'd be curious how you think about that. Yeah, completely. I mean, we, we, we have a whole series of tests and, and systems and, and evaluation protocols that we've frankly refined uh, over the last 20 plus years. You know, there's aptitude, there's personality profile, there's, you know, there's fit. And, you know, you, you go through a battery of these things, but we found, and you all know this, you know, you're far better off having the right person in the right seat uh, first and early than, you know, if you get somebody who is Great, great background pedigree, but you have them in the right, wrong seat for their background or wrong seat for, you know, what you need to accomplish. And then it's just a disaster and it just costs you more to unwind it. So, I mean, that that's one of the protocols and sets of best practices we continue to refine and enhance in terms of how we, how we drive our businesses forward. And, you know, I, I, that's, again, constant improvement. And I always think about it as a lock and key type of a mechanism. You can look at a certain person's profile and they may be great to be in a services department, but horrible to be in a sales department or in the development department. And sometimes yep. you have to point out to people and say, based on your background and profile uh, from what we've seen over the last 20 plus years, 
you'd actually be a really good programmer. I know you're an English major, and I know you've never written code before, but you probably would be a pretty good programmer. And oh, by the way, we will actually train and develop you to do that. And when you do that, first of all, you get a high retention rate with those folks because you've invested in them, and you get massive productivity. And those are some of the things that obviously we, we keep track of. And it's just astounding when you get the right people who are energized with the right background in their role, the, the productivity you get there is, is, is exponential relative to someone who just, quote unquote, has the right pedigree and, you know, knew somebody and, and got a job because they're related to somebody in the company. <laughs> yep, yep. The, the, the tried and not so true method. Right. You know, right. you know, it's it's interesting though on that on that point um, because you know as, as I'm sure you know Robert, um, you know personality tests in business were much more common you know 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. It was sort of like HP, for example, I think was legendary. The, the executive uh, yep. uh, performance uh, battery test was I think six hours long. Yeah. Um, and I know you know IBM was also legendary for this in the old days. And yep. so you know, and that that approach went out of fashion. I would say probably 20, mm -hmm. 30 years ago in most places. And I think there was a lot of concern. Um, you know, it sort of became a politically charged topic where there was a lot of concern that maybe the tests weren't fair, or that people with certain kinds of educational backgrounds would have a leg up on the test. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like you don't believe that. It sounds like you think that they might be more fair. I'd be no, no what, 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 we do, what we do is we, we constantly refine and hone it. We, you know, we, we are focused on, and you know, if you look at our, our overall, I mean, we have the most diverse, not only private equity firm, but, but frankly, uh, across our portfolio companies of, of rank and file once we you know, kind of get to a company and have a chance to work with them. Why? Because we don't just take it and say, okay, well, here's the test results. Here's what it is. You know, we actually look at it and say, okay, how do we ensure that we don't create conscious bias in the whole program? And it's, it's constant. And you just have to do that. And you have to, we have one of our companies gone public, done tremendously where when we, when we made our first, you know, investment in the company, frankly, it was one of the, you know, least diverse companies, you know, <laughs> that we'd ever met. And now it's one of the, one of the, the most. Why? Because we said, well, where are you hiring from? And they kind of listed the five places. I said, well, okay, they've got like a 2%, 3%, 5% uh, diversity in their engineering classes. Well, what do you expect to find? So we basically started to plug them into some of our, I call them our wholesale networks of HBCUs, et cetera. And now company not only is thriving, it's, growing, it's doubled in size and, and doubled its growth rate, and it actually has a more diverse workforce. I mean, these are actual facts, right? And this is how it works, but... You know, part of what we bring is that capacity to not only understand it, but also here's a solution that you all can can embrace. And we do it from the board level. I think I think today it's like 80% of our boards have a person of color on them. And I think it's like 70% have at least one one female on every one of our boards of 70 plus companies that we that we that we are, are you know invested in or, or own today. But that's conscious and deliberate. And part of that also is when we do our testing and our assessments is to ensure that we're not creating bias. And if we see that start to pop up, okay, well, what are we doing wrong and how are we going to fix it? And that's, mm -hmm. but you got to be in tune with the whole system to make that work. <laughs> got it, Ben. Do you want to ask anything on this stuff before we move on? You know, that's like, I think that's super, super interesting. And how often do you do you find um, you know somebody who's got who was told to be an engineer but really should be in sales or vice versa? Like how how frequent is that where they're yeah, just on the wrong life track? It is it is every day. It is and in the last uh, kind of oh, man, I think we have um, it. We have over 300,000 people who take that aptitude test and personality profile, I think, every six months. 
Okay, mm-hmm. just to get, I mean, it's global. It's just, you know, if you're, yeah. if you're interested, no matter where you are, we've got it, and I can't tell you how many languages, etc. And it's just a big old funnel, right? And it just yeah. kind of funnels down, and we find these folks and, you know, say, you know, oh, I'm interested in this job at this company because I saw that you were hiring. And we'll say, well, that's great. And, you know, what are you interested in doing? And they may say, oh, I want to, you know, work as that. Well, your profile actually suggests that you may, would you be interested in trying this? One of the more famous stories that I always use, you know, we had a, a, a woman and basically she ran a Domino's pizza, you know, uh, outsourcing place. You know, they, they bake them and, you know, send them out and all that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, and she came, took the aptitude test, personality profile, and, and we said, hey, you know, you look like you'd be a pretty good sales trainer. And she said, well, 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 I've never done that before. We said, well, you know, based on the profile, it looks like you, you do that pretty well. Three years later, she's actually teaching sales training for, for that company and at one of our best practice uh, solution seminar uh, offsites. You see what I mean? So that's just a classic example. I mean, we got thousands of those examples, to be honest with you. But part of it is, you know, helping to assess. And you guys know that, you know, the different tests that are out there and, you know, that you've heard about them, that, you know, different, you know, profiles. But we, we actually stick to them and use them. <laughs> and I think that makes a big difference. Yeah, well, and then you've got a quantitative approach to hiring, which is um, also, you know, a huge missing, missing yeah. component. And I'll tell you that one of the, the, the best things about it is um, at the end of what I'll call the transformation process, you know, typically we have 20% more employees in a company than when we bought it, kind of point number one. And typically, and it's almost you know, almost 100%, but, you know, close to that, we're, we're actually attrition rate on each of those individual companies plummets. So, I mean, we're getting two, three, four percent yeah. turnover in these businesses. So, I mean, that's one of the, the, the outgrowths of getting people in the jobs where they're happy and they're, they're, they're excited about what they're doing and there's a good fit for them. Yeah, and it's, a, it's amazing, you know, because bias is really, when you really unravel hiring, is bias to yourself, i.e. bias to the hiring manager. Whatever yeah. they're good at, that's what they're looking for. Yeah. And so quantifying it and, and uh, making it objective is such a such an incredibly smart idea. And uh, it's not having I mean, it's, it's listening to it's not surprising that you've had such great results. Yeah, and Ben, and frankly, you, you've, you've got to you've got to stick with it, right? You know, everyone's like, well, wait a minute, I've been hiring from you know my same fraternity out of this same, this same college for the last twelve years. Like, well, and look at your results, right? It may not be bad, but that doesn't mean it's just, you can't make it better, right? So, I mean, that's, <laughs> no, no. And, 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 and look, the, the, the good news is we've done so many transactions. We've done this so often. I can actually pull up a profile of an entry-level programmer and say, you know, here's what a better profile of an entry-level pro. Now, now let's test everybody in your organization, and you find out, man, only about you know a third of my organization actually fits this profile. You say, well, well, yeah. So if you actually kind of conform to this profile, you'll probably get a little more output. And sure enough, and it was so funny. A year later, or two years later, as they do that, almost every CEO is like, man, I should have done it earlier, right? So yeah. you know, yeah. proof the pudding's always in the eating. So that's that's part of what we have to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. no doubt that that that's a. Yeah, it's a great story. And I'm so, I'm so glad you went through it because you know there are a lot of CEOs listening as well. Good. Well, let's uh, let's move on. There's one final question on Vista, Robert, and then we'll get to your uh, other other uh, uh, thoughts and ideas. Um, you know, so at this stage in your career, having done what you've done at Vista, you know, you could kind of pull the ripcord and retire. 
uh, at any moment um, and have, you know, have, have had one of the great kind of runs um, in investment history. So like, what's, what, what, what I was, you know, kind of two part question, I guess, what keeps you going is one. And then the other is kind of, where are you going? So what, what are your big ambitions and, and goals for the next, uh, you know, decade sure. or two decades with your firm? Man, what keeps me going? If, if, if I had to retire, my, my wife started a business. Um, it's a great business. Uh, it, it, it's called mother and, and she'd probably make, put me to work for less pay. So, <laughs> So it's a fantastic business, but but uh, you know, for me, I actually love what I do. It is it is spectacular. Um, I, you know, the people I get to work with day to day, the 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 you know, frankly, the CEOs, the engineers, the entrepreneurs, you know, my team at Vista, you know, they're fun, they're fascinating. Most of them have a good sense of humor, you know, and uh, it, it and and we actually make a difference, you know, and and I say this. And I sincerely mean it, you know, when you're actually able to help companies grow, and you all know what I'm talking about, and you're actually able to, you know, help not only them grow their revenue and sales, but, the, you know, the people they employ and the communities yep. that they serve and the stakeholders that are important to them. Man, there's, there, that's a great feeling. It, it, yep. it really is. And I, I look forward to that kind of every day. And every day there's something new that some new challenge I've never faced. And that's why, you know, discover the joy of figuring things out. I mean, that... All that stuff is really neat to me, um, and, and I'm excited. You know, when I think about next phases of, of, of my life, you know, I, I, I hope I'm able to, to really continue to grow Vista of a size and scale where we are now really, you know, impacting some of the communities, and I'm, and I'm going to get to this in a second, mm -hmm. that yep. now have computing power access, right? Yep. Now, if you think about it, you know, computing power 30, 40 years ago, Ben, it was governments, large corporations, universities had access to this computing power. Now, almost everyone does. And, in, you know, part of one of my, uh, call it goals is, you know, well, how do we enable these folks to actually become productive uh, in utilizing this computing power for the good of all of us, for the good of society? And there's, you know, four of the major markets uh, in the world today really don't have uh, enterprise software layers, right? I mean, they have enterprise software serving companies, but not enterprise software layers or ecosystems. And I want to see us be a big part of that, that, that dynamic. And frankly, in the U.S., there are communities that don't have access to computing power, and, and I want to ensure, at least in the near term, uh, do all I can to ensure they now have access and can now contribute and be a part of this, you know, this whole fourth industrial revolution. So that's really how I think about, you know, the thrust going forward. And I don't know if my work will ever be done, uh, probably just continue to evolve in different ways. And, and, uh, and I actually look forward to that, you know, those new challenges. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Good. Well, let's, we're at about uh, 7.50, so let's move on to the, the final section, which is uh, philanthropy and then uh, community leadership and a lot of the work that you're doing. So maybe you could start, you know, you've, you've had the opportunity over the years to be involved in a lot of very interesting areas of philanthropy, and you've been, you know, very active as a donor on a number of fronts. So just curious, like, how, how do you kind of think of your overall philosophy uh, for, yeah. for giving? Yeah, but, the, you know, at its highest level, I always talk about there's no greater joy on this planet than, than to be able to liberate the human spirit, right? And I think that's in business, in arts, um, uh, you know, every element of, of what I call a, a wholesome and full life. You know, in business, liberating the human spirit, you all get to do this where you have an entrepreneur come into your office and say, hey, 
I've got a really good idea. And, you know, you kind of press them for hours. You're like, that's actually a really good idea. And you liberate them with some capital and some know-how and some, and surrounding them with some people who've also had good ideas who've been successful. And you know the feeling when you see that person a year or two later and say, wow, if it wasn't for you, I couldn't have realized what is my greatest idea, ambition, et cetera. Man, that's a beautiful thing. Um, and I think about my life in that context, you know, in, in you know, my business life. But then on the philanthropic side, I think about all these, you know, folks out there and many in the African-American and Latinx community who, who don't have opportunities to liber get, be, become liberated in music, for instance, or, or say, you know, I'd, I'd love to be able to, you know, play this instrument or, or, or you know, play on a better instrument or, or travel and play in this competition. Um, or quite frankly, to actually learn to write code or, or, or go to a great college and not be burdened with debt in a way that, that you know, keeps me from actually going off to, to medical school. So I think about those are elements that are uplifting to my spirit by liberating other spirits. So that's the overall philosophy. And I look for the places, frankly, where, where I can actually you know, have some impact at scale. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you touched on music. I want to talk about a, a few of these areas, but you touched on music, which you, you may know is uh, is uh, Ben's uh, either favorite or second favorite topic after uh, after tech. Um, yep. You are uh, very involved in music. You are, if I have the notes correct here, you are the um, chairman of Carnegie Hall. Is that right? Correct. Fantastic. Um, you named your son Hendrix. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, and now I, I was going to ask, is that Jimmy or Future? <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, it was neither, but everybody kind of picks on up. And then I've got another son by the name of uh, Legend, and everybody thinks he's named after John Legend. And, and, yeah, and Christy always funny. says John's name. Christy says John isn't even John Legend. So anyway, but no, we just we just love those those names. But yeah, Carnegie Hall, and you know, my wife and I support a number of things there. And one of the most important is our Link Up project, where we now get you know music lessons into about six hundred thousand kids a year. Um, and, you know, and, uh, also National Youth Orchestra, National Youth Jazz Orchestra. I mean, those are our greatest ambassadors, I think, from the U.S. to the rest of the world as our, our young musicians. And that's why I think it's just critically important to support those sorts of those sorts of activities and, and programs. Is that is that what is that is that why music is important to you? It's important to me because my father went to school on a band scholarship. Oh, okay. Um, uh, my father played, you know, six instruments. Amazing. Uh, every, yeah, every Sunday he would, you know, get up and start playing the organ uh, or the piano in our house, and he would play for hours at a time. Uh, and all I can tell you is, you know, that that's what makes it feel like home to me, if you know what I mean. So. Oh, that's great. Well, actually, I, I, I have a... Uh... <clears throat> A controversial, maybe a controversial question, but uh, sure. I'll take the controversial yeah. position, and um, <laughs> yeah, and you tell me if you agree with it, because it kind of music brings up this thing. So there's this, you know, when you talk about kind of, uh, you know, philanthropy, and you know, some of the things I've read that you've talked about, like you know, the the damage that redlining did, or you know, yep. what are the opportunities? It, you know, it's it's occurred to me for a while. I guess I have a belief that the whole intersectionality movement turns out to be kind of quite detrimental to, to black people in particular because um, both the challenges are unique, that they're not the same across, you know, every, uh, you know, race or, or kind of, you know, every cause. And then the opportunities, and you mentioned, you know, music are our best ambassadors. And if you look at kind of U.S. exports, culture is just a massive export. And it's 
dominated by black people in this country, you know, from music to fashion to sports to everything that we export culturally. Um, but the opportunity, and there's, so there's a great economic opportunity there if you could uh, kind of transfer ownership to the creators away from yep. the distributors yep. in those fields. Um, but that's really specific. It's not an intersectional cause. And to me, like the highest leverage points are things that are completely specific to the people. And so it, it is frustrating to see so much effort get lumped into these kind of broader causes. But <laughs> so, so my opinion so, is, you know, we should avoid that and uh, focus on the things with leverage. But I, I'd love your not, opinion. Not, no, I, I, you know, I think, look, there, there, there's a couple elements. There, there is, you know, fundamentally, there is the opportunity to learn to create, right, which is how I think about a lot of these things. You know, these, these students, you know, they don't understand the agency and the business of, you know, how economic rent is captured from the exporting of, uh, of culture. Right. Yep. And and right. and but it is up to us, you know, people on this call who say that ain't right. We need to change that. Right. Yes. Um, but yes. the artists, you know, they have to go do what they do, which is create. And their job is to liberate our spirits when they're listening to their music and, and understanding what they are saying and and how it's going to move us. Um, but it is our responsibilities as decent human beings to create constructs whereby the economic they get their fair share of the economic rent. Okay, right. and, yep. and and I think that's an important part of who we are as business leaders. You can't just say, "Ah, oh, man, well they don't get this because they're they're worried about you know you know ensuring that the you know the harmony and the you know the tonality of that music is right." Well, man, then well if if you know that, then you need to ensure that the platform that they're performing on ensures that they get a fair share of the economic rent so they can continue to create and and deliberate. I mean that's that's the dynamic, and you know it is part of us you know, as, as, as business leaders to, 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 to get that right, to educate them, but also to get that as, as right as we can. And look, we're not going to get it right every time, but we need to make it more right every time as opposed to less right. You know, that, that is the, you know, that's such a profound thing because it's the, uh, you know, if people aren't rewarded proportional to their contributions, then the whole system becomes unfair. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you know, it's we, really we, the key. And when we see those things, we've got to, okay, technology is a great leveler, right? Yeah. To a great extent. You remember, man, years ago, the music business, you know, they were, you know, it was dominated five, six players. They captured yeah. all the economic rent. Okay, now you actually have platforms that are supposed to deliver more economic rent, you know, reasonably to these, to these folks. Look, I don't know if it does or doesn't, um, but I think it's a little... Well, we're working on it. Right. <laughs> we're working on it. I think that, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, breaking the distribution, you know, monopolies... Is, is kind of fundamental to moving the value to the creators and the creatives. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, that, I, I think it's really kind of an important thing to work on. But something that, you know, because, you know, you do have, you know, I always think of people, black people get portrayed at the bottom of society, but in many fields are at the top of society. And, you know, if you can make those fields economically fair, things can change very, very quickly. So... And you're right. Look, man, we've got we've got a whole history in this country that we've got to to pulse through. And we're trying to do it in this generation. You got 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal. 
you know, yep. it's like shit, right? I'm, excuse me, I'm probably not supposed to curse on here, but, you know. <laughs> no, it's okay. But now it's all like, the time. Oh, yeah, but we've got to now pulse through this. And it is people like you and I and others on this call that have to pulse through this and say, this is not right. We need to fix this. Let's fix this now. And there's need to be some, you know, and, and a new equilibrium state needs to be accomplished and achieved and we can do this now. That's the point. We have the capacity to do this now. Years ago, there wasn't a communication ability. Right now, you guys get four million people in a clubhouse, and you, you know, you know, yep. in a moment's notice. That's how you change opinion. That's how you make things happen. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's yeah. It. Yeah. And in fact, Robert, on this, awesome. on, this on, on the topic, on the topic of kind of, of matching kind of uh, opportunity outcome, um, you know, you alluded to this, but like Silicon Valley is a case study of this, not for not for a you know, not for a specific group, but like, as, as you said, like 40 years ago, engineers, <laughs> engineers like you and me would have been working for, you know, a corporate manager somewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, and building, you know, ma many of the great technology products of all time got built by engineers who just made a straight salary the whole time. Yeah. And then, you know, we were able to create this equity culture, right, where people were able to participate and, and, and own and then and ultimately run their own companies. And so it does seem like at least the tech industry, we have set a powerful template uh, for how right. we could we could do this more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. And we now need to help everyone else in other industries understand us. Oh, and by the way, what we've also done is we've taken this tech template and now through this fourth industrial revolution, we have now made it permeated throughout every industry on the planet. Right. That's what's amazing to me. Right. And yep. so yes. now it's just I call it a matter of time. Plus, we have to onboard as many people as we can from every background that we can who can now participate in this opportunity, because that's how we're going to change it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Then, I mean, that. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. No, go ahead, Ben. Please. I was just going to kind of add on to that. That that, you know, that to me, there's a, you know, we always talk about the digital divide. Like, well, why does it have to be that way? Like, why can't we get, you know, why can't we get with uh, crypto? <laughs> you know, why can't we get, uh, you know, people who need to be on it, poor people, everybody on crypto first? There's no reason not to. And uh, with the internet and the communication vehicles we have, we absolutely can. So. Um, I 100% agree with that. And, and the first thing we've got to do, which is one of the things we're working on, is first, let's get all the people in America connected. You know, my buddy, Makesh, yeah. I mean, he's dealing with the whole storm of, you know, and he's doing a fantastic job uh, in, in India right now. I mean, I think he and his team are now producing, I think it's like 15% of the oxygen. And that look, they're not in that business to do that, but they're doing it. Uh, Makesh got 415, 20 million people online, you know, 4G today. And we can't get, you know, the other 35, 40 million, you know, African-American, Latinx, and rural, you know, population American online? Come on. Come on. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That's the kind of stuff you're like, you know, something's just wrong there. That's what we got we to gotta fix. We got to fix that. Yep. So head into the home stretch and continuing on this theme. Um, so you mounted a uh, actually quite famous at the time, a couple of years ago, uh, philanthropic initiative that uh, took a lot of people by surprise and generated some headlines. And I wonder if you could if you could tell us what that was uh, for people who didn't hear that at the time. And then I also uh, love if you could describe kind of why that and what what message were you trying to send by doing that? Yeah, I mean, so, in, you know, everyone points to really, you know, the, the, the Morehouse gift uh, and, and liberating 400 students of their student loan debt and their parents of the student loan debt. And this gets back to liberating the human spirit. You know, it, not long story short, I'd gone to Morehouse, you know, a year before uh, in, in just, you know, when you, you guys, you know, when you sit there and you look into these young people's eyes and you see the what they want to get done and they're accomplishing the promise and 
all that. And then you start getting the details about the burden that they have. And many of them are first generation out of college and making less money than, than, than other students with more debt. And, you know, and then I had my team do some work and I'll get to it, you know. Uh, and so, you know, I said, okay, look, we'll, we'll do that and take care of that. But, but then as my team was doing work, we figured out 65% of African-American wealth goes to servicing student loans. I was just blown away by that. I'm like, well, that's just a travesty because, oh, by the way, guess where that money goes? Back to the government. Well, that's just wrong, right? <laughs> yep. So, you know, I'm sitting there. So it keeps them from participating in buying houses, investing in stock, investing in, you know, crypto, whatever they want to invest in because they're servicing this debt, okay, and in, 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 in frankly, an economy that has been, you know, disadvantaging them for not only their life but nine generations before them. And so I said, look, let's come up with a new program. It's called the Student Freedom Initiative. Uh, and what we're looking to do is create, and, and already funded with $100 million, but, you know, it, 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 to, to, we're in essence these kids, now they borrow money, STEM students, because I focus on STEM, right? Uh, juniors and seniors, they borrow this money, and it's at a lower rate than, uh, than you know, the, the parent plus loans. But, oh, by the way, they don't pay it back to the government. They pay it back into this system so it gets recirculated for the next generation of students. Oh, that's great, yeah. Yeah, so that's the kind of thing that, you know, again, systems, you know, kind of solutions at scale. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm focused on. Great, fantastic, good. And then uh, let me ask uh, Robert one, one final question on this topic. Um, mm -hmm. So you're the chairman of Carnegie Hall, and um, Andrew Carnegie famously wrote a book uh, called yep. The Gospel of Wealth. And I yep. would, I'm hoping you could maybe tell us what, what that book means to you. Yeah, what it really talks about and, you know, Andrew Carnegie kind of, he, he got, and you think about his time, you know, one of the you know, wealthiest people, frankly, ever in the history of, of, of the United States, right? And what he talked about was saying, hey, you know, for you, for you, us all, um, when you become wealthy, um, part of what you need to do is to deliver that money back into the communities that you come from. And his famous quote was, a man who dies thus rich dies disgraced, mm -hmm. right? And now what he was saying, he wasn't saying, oh, just give it away. He's saying, don't, don't give it to people who aren't working hard to maximize their talents, okay? Don't give it to people who are just satisfied with kind of, you know, mediocrity, right? He's yeah. saying, Give it to institutions, which you know he's built most of the libraries that we all participate in now. Obviously, Carnegie Hall is one of the more famous. And what he did Carnegie uh, uh, with this Carnegie philanthropy, I mean, he's one of the big donors to Cornell, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what he did was, and a lot of that was for the equalization, actually, of, of African Americans to go study at Cornell. A lot of people don't know that. But, you know, what he did was say, I want to enable people to better their position and their station in life. Mm -hmm. Look, if you're going to be lazy and sit at home and watch Naked and Afraid, I'm just teasing. That was our earlier comment. For some of you who weren't on the earlier, that's a, just a reference to an earlier comment we had together joking around. But you know, if you're going to be that, then no, you don't necessarily deserve uh, a handout just because you're living. But if you are trying to better yourself, you should have access to education. That's why I created libraries. Like what we should do is create broadband access to all students and all people who want that so they can become learned in the areas that they think that, that they're interested in and contribute to society. And I think, you know, 
I applaud what you all have done. Obviously, you guys know I'm, I'm members of the, the Giving Pledge. And what you all did internally saying, guess what? You know, the partners here are going to give up half of their wealth and their and their earnings to philanthropic ventures. I applaud that. You know, with a I give you a standing ovation, because that's the type of leadership that our industries collectively need to embrace and understand that we are blessed to be a blessing in this world. Okay, and so we should actually take that seriously and and deliver back those blessings, not only in terms of our time and energy, but also our capital and the utilization of our capital in efficient ways to make our society better. So anyway. Good. Robert. That's an amazing close. Yeah. Well, that's guys, I can't thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Um, and always fun to, to catch up. And look, I hope we can do this again. And, and uh, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do it in person as well. And, you know, I'll, I'll look forward to that day. Outstanding. 100%. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, and then, uh, again, thank, thank you for everybody who helped get the room started. Yes, 100%. Awesome. Robert, thank you again. We, we, we loved having you. A pleasure. Thanks, guys. Be well. Be well. Be safe. Take care. Bye bye. Okay. Okay. Thank Everybody you. Have a great night. Okay.